This is Resurrection Sunday. I'm excited to be with you guys. If you're new faces, thanks for coming out and connecting with us. All right, let's open your Bibles to John chapter 20. I wanted to share with you a few things from the Word. I want to teach for a little bit. I don't want to go too long because I want us to have a chance to minister to one another. I believe that God just has some, some ministry that He wants to do in us and through us. Um, maybe you've come with a need or condition or something you need healing for. We want to have a chance to do that as well. And I'd make sure we, we do want to land the plane so that we can get on for our egg hunt adventure. So come on, we're going to be moving through. We're going to be moving through this um, pretty quickly. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I, I, I've been awake since about 4.30 this morning and about 5, maybe 5.15 or so, I went into the couch to let Meg finish sleeping and just reading and praying through this again. Um, and it doesn't always happen this way, but often there's new things that the Lord brings out about a story that's very familiar. And how many of you have been a, like a cradle-to-grave Christian? You know what I mean? Like you were born in the church. Like you were literally born up here at the altar and you've been at church all your life and you could recite every Sunday school story. That's kind of how I was. My parents were that way. Taught me to church. I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church on Sunday morning, drug on Sunday night, drug on Wednesday, every time. You know, so these stories can become so familiar that they almost lose their power. You know, and like, I want to have that wonder again, that excitement again. One of the things that we were doing in Nepal, I didn't mention this. Well, I did, but we had to take it off live stream because I was mouth off too early. Is we were actually um, taking Jesus films in and we're, that's not welcome <laughs> in countries like that. So we were praying as we went through customs, please don't check our bags, please don't check our bags. And they didn't. It was just the Lord's grace. We brought in a good 50 or so DVDs of, of the Jesus film. And there's a story about, you know, and in, 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 um, one of these films was being shown in, in a far part of the country, a far part of the world, you know, to a bunch of people that had never seen this before. And they're, they're, if you're familiar with the Jesus film, it's basically the story of Jesus up on film, you know, his ministry and all of his healing. And, um, and this particular village had obviously never been engaged with the gospel. They'd never seen this before. They've never seen the story, and they're watching this, and they're watching Jesus, you know, be arrested. They're watching him be, um, be crucified, and they're watching with just astonishment and horror as the hero of the story is being executed in front of them. And just the village, true story, the village is the people watching are just aghast at this and you can just hear the murmurs through the crowd you know and this the murmurs through the crowd and they and they're just you know beginning to weep as they see on film him taken down from the cross and put in the tomb and just as this wave of sorrow is just sweeping through the through through this gathering all of a sudden one little boy jumps up and he says no 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 hold on i've already seen this story don't worry he gets up again <laughs> And I'm like, I want to have that kind of wonder, the kind of just, you know, that, that, that raw encounter with really what this story means historically, what it means to me personally. I don't want to just kind of 
go through the motions of the story all over again. So it can be a challenge, but the Spirit of God helps us to do that. I want us to do that maybe again this morning. So um, can we just kind of read through and talk through some of this very familiar story um, and, and just see if there's some insight that the Lord wants to give us. I want to go here in John 20, and I want to go to two other places. Um, I believe Romans 6 and then Revelation 1, and then we're going to be done. Can we do that? Okay, let me pray for us, and then we're going to go. Father, would you take your word and make it come alive to us by your spirit? Would you show us the man, Jesus, as if we are journeying through time and encountering him again in a fresh way? Jesus, the the hinge of history, the lover of our souls, Show us him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, just a little, a little bit of background before we get into this. Um, in the timeline of the week, Jesus has been, this is Sunday. We know that um, late on Thursday, after his time with the disciples in that meal together, he walked out out of Jerusalem into um, a, an orchard grove outside of the city. There he was arrested, betrayed by Judas. He was arrested. He was brought, and he was brought before several different governing bodies, before the Jewish leaders and eventually before Pilate, who was the, the Roman governor. Um, it's an overreach to say that he was tried. It wasn't really a fair or a legal trial, but he was tried in some sense of the word. Um, we also know that he was flogged. All this was happening in the hours of Thursday night leading up until Friday morning. He was flogged, which means he was um, stripped down to basically just a, a cloth covering his, his midsection here, tied to a post, and he was beaten, whipped with um, sort of a, a, a lengthy you know, leather and stone and glass bits on the end. He was beaten, flogged with that, whipped with that uh, 39 times, uh, which and, uh, enough to almost probably would kill any ordinary person. And it, it certainly has killed many people. He was flogged um, almost to the point of death. Um, and after that, he was taken outside of the city gates. He was paraded sort of through these winding Jerusalem alleyways made to carry the cross piece, the, the beam um, that, would, that, that they would use to execute him. He was made to carry that. So, you know, despite being beaten and flogged, loss of blood, all of those things, he was also carrying a, a, a heavy cross piece of, a, of wood through these streets and taken outside of the city gates. On Friday morning, we know that there he was um, he was nailed with a nail through each, each hand and a nail through his feet that were crossed over onto this. And he was hoisted up on this, on this cross. Um, the Bible describes, all four Gospels describe this in great detail. They give a tremendous amount of attention to what we call the passion of the Christ. In other words, the suffering of the Christ. We give a lot of detail to that. Uh, so this is on Friday morning. He 
is on this cross for much of Friday morning into noon, into the afternoon. By the afternoon, Jesus has died of his wounds. He has died of his injuries. His followers, um, the, 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 of course, the, 12, the 11 disciples, Judas has already gone on and, and, and lost his mind. Um, his 11 disciples, plus many women, and we're going to meet one of those in a moment, plus many women who were part of his disciples as well. They weren't part of the 11, but disciples as well. Their, their, their emotions have just been such a roller coaster from, from the last week. And to say that they were in shock and disbelief is an understatement. Um, and many of them just scatter. Peter and James and John, they are just like when you flip on a light and all the vermin scatter to hide in the shadows, that's much like what the disciples did processing their own grief. There's some fear there. Am I next? Are they going to come after us? Are they going to execute me as well? The women, interestingly enough, stay by his side. Speaks a lot about the, the fortitude of these female disciples. They stay by his side, and the time comes um, to bury him. I want to read a little bit about this in, in 38. I don't think it's up on our screen, but I do want to point this out. It says this in John 19, at the end of 19. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. It's interesting to me. How do you be a secret disciple of Jesus? Well, it's because you're afraid of what men think. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. This is another uh, religious leader who was secretly an admirer, if not a follower of Jesus, but of course it's all secretive. Um, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So Meg and I, she went and bought a bag of dog food yesterday from Sam's. It's a 50-pound bag of dog food. Things pretty heavy. My kids couldn't pick it up. Imagine 1.5 of those full of aromatic spices and ointments that are used for burial. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. So, um, of course, the, this is not the days of, of caskets, you know, caskets that are nice wooden or fiberglass, and it's got the plush lining inside. If those of you that, you know, are familiar with that, and you close it up, and it seals the body. This, those didn't happen. It's like, you know, you either, you either just kind of put the body in the ground, or if, if, you, if you have means, you wrap the body in, in linen cloths, strips of linen, and you're packing it with this mixture of oil and spices. And the effect of this is that this, this oil and spices will almost harden and set and almost create like this shell around the deceased body. It's going to preserve the body. It's going to keep animals, you know, smells from coming out and animals from coming in. It's going to be almost like it's kind of been, a, you know, mummified, just wrapped up with all these spices, a tremendous amount of work that goes into this. Um, the Bible tells us later on that because this was now Friday afternoon, about three o'clock or so when he dies, um, by sundown will be the end of that Jewish day and will be the beginning of the next day, which during this week happens to be a Sabbath day. So by sundown, it's going to be a Sabbath day. It's going to be a day where you cannot work. 
And this was a special Sabbath. This was the Sabbath of Passover week. All the more reason why if there's any, any work to be done, it must happen before sundown. So essentially, they're taking what would, would, what, what would be an all-day burial process, and they're condensing it down to within a few hours. And they're doing, doing this very quickly. They take his body down, prepare it, wrap it. Uh, it goes on to say that there's a, there's a garden nearby with a new tomb that's been cut out, belonged to Joseph. He is a man of means. He's a man of money. This likely was his own cave where he and his family would, would one day be buried. He purchases for himself, but he says, no, I want, I want Rabbi Yeshua to go and be buried there. He goes in, they lay him down there, and a stone... A boulder is rolled in place to seal this off. And the other Gospels tell us that Pilate has established guards, Roman guards, outside of this tomb with the seal of the emperor sealing over the tomb, meaning it is punishable by the full might of the Roman Empire to disturb this tomb. And guards are posted there throughout the night. And Pilate and the others are simply afraid, um, not of someone coming out of the tomb, but of someone going into the tomb to, to take the body and to, 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 to pull the body away and to make this false claim about how the Messiah, Jesus, is actually risen from the dead. And they don't want that to happen, so they seal it, and they post guards there. And so this happens on Friday evening. The sun goes down, and Jesus, the, the, hope, of, the hope of so many, is dead and buried. And this is by far the most stunning turn of events that anyone foresaw in Jerusalem. And the word is scattered around that Yeshua bar Yosef is now dead. He has been executed. We saw him with our own eyes. He hung upon the cross and his blood drained out of his body and by the afternoon he was dead. And he's in the grave, and Saturday comes, and those of his disciples that were near to him were simply in a time of, of shock and grief and astonishment. And we don't know what characters like Mary would have done on Saturday. It's very likely that simply they would just go and weep outside of his tomb during this day and return home and just comfort and console one another. But it says this in chapter 20, that the, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, this would be Sunday morning, before the sun is up, Mary likely has not slept at all. If I think I know Mary, she hasn't slept all weekend long. She's poured her heart out to the Lord in grief and sorrow. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone, that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Mary is not in the know. She's, she's, not, she's not 
part of these inner conversations, all she can imagine is that Joseph may have taken him and moved him to a, uh, to a better place, to a secret place, or Nicodemus may have moved him to a secret place, and she's heartbroken because this is, she was going, she was going to come, and she was going to just sit at the tomb, and now the tomb is empty, and I don't know where they've taken his body. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So you with the story so far. Mary goes. She sees something. She panics. She goes and tells the boys. The boys come. They see for themselves. They look inside. They don't see anything. All they see is linen cloths and for some reason, they go back. But what's interesting is that Mary doesn't go back. She stays. She's not leaving. Something is, 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 is not adding up in her mind, and she needs to get to the bottom of what's happening here. So Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. Listen to this. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. The, the men didn't see them. Mary, in her faith and in her brokenness and in her perseverance to encounter Jesus, her eyes are open to see these two individuals seated, one at the foot, one at the head. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. That's, that's hard for me to, to kind of get my head around. This is, this is Mary. She's been walking with Jesus as a disciple for a long time. This is, she, this is Mary who had seven demons driven out of her by Jesus. She knows his face, but in her grief and in her brokenness, somehow she just does not see what's happening. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now look at this. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. How exactly would she get him? What would you do, Mary? This is a grown man. With How are you going to carry him? But love doesn't always think logically. This is what love does. She says, I don't care. I don't, I, don't, I don't care. You tell me where he is. I'll go find him. I'll get him. I'll bring his body back where he belongs. I'll be a caretaker. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. He speaks her name, and her eyes are opened. It's pretty awesome. Something about the way that he says her name. No one says my name the way Jesus says my name. 
The words may be the same, but no one says it the same way. And she turns to him and she cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher. I want to suggest something that the whole time that we've, those of us that grew up in church with, with these stories, I, you know how old I am? I'm flannel gram old. Anybody flannel gram old? Flannel gram was our TVs. We didn't have these. We had the big boards with a piece of flannel felt on there. We had the little sticker, the little felt pieces that you would stick up. That was, that, that was about as interactive and high def as we got. I got to tell you, my Sunday school teachers were wrong when they told me that the tomb was empty. The tomb wasn't empty. I know what they mean. They mean that Jesus wasn't there. So technically there wasn't a person, but the tomb wasn't empty. There was something in the tomb. And I think for so many years, I would just sort of move past this, the, the meaning of what happens when, when they come and they look inside and they don't see it empty. They don't see it cleaned out. They see something missing, but something there. What's missing? The body of Jesus, but something else is there. The tomb isn't empty. And what, what's, what's the meaning of that? The body is gone, but verse 5 says he bent over and looked at the strips of linen laying there. Verse 6, Simon sees the same thing. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place separate from the linen. And I can't help but think, of course, everything is, is, is purposeful that Jesus does. Everything is, is, is meaningful. There are no accidents. He was the master teacher. He loved to take things that were practical and turn them into teaching moments. Right, and I think this is this is no 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 less one of those when he says, "Okay, I'm gonna, he's like I'm I'm I, I, I'm getting out of this grave, but I'm going to leave something behind as a, as a point as a teaching point for them." And he leaves behind this this what he's been wrapped in for three days, these linen clothes, these, these linen strips on the ground that are just saturated with with spices and with oil and with fragrance. I began to think, what's the significance of that? I think it serves several, several purposes. First thing I think it means is this. I think historically, the, the, the presence of those mean that Christ has physically returned to life. And here's what I mean by that. It means the body was not stolen. The body was taken. The body was, 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 was resurrected and left behind. If you're going to steal a body... Listen, I'm not an expert at stealing bodies in the first century. But if I'm going to steal a body, especially one that is guarded by the weight of the Roman Empire, I'm not going to take the time to unwrap this body. Yeah, it weighs some, it got some extra weight because of all the stuff. You know, I'm taking my buddies. Me and Chuck, Chuck, come on, let's go. We're going to go steal this. We're not going to unwrap it at the scene of the crime. We're going to get the heck out of there and deal with it later on. And Jesus wants to make it very clear, listen, this is not a matter of somebody stealing the body. I'm leaving grave clothes behind because grave clothes belong in the grave, and I don't belong in the grave. So he leaves it there to say something supernatural has happened here. There's been a physical returning to life of a physical man, and this is becoming such a, you know, 
such such a dividing point in, in even in the last 100 years, especially is, is this belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Church, you, would, you will be astonished about how many Christian scholars you will find, well-known, writing books, teaching in universities, who say, no, this is not an actual fact. Jesus was not physically resurrected from the dead. And they have a lot of other things about what happened. Well, he didn't really die. It was sort of a myth. And, you know, his, he, he lives on in the memories of his followers and all this other kind of stuff. And Jesus says, let me make it very, very clear. And he leaves this here. Um, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi for, for much of my adult life. There's a, there's a school there, a Methodist school there called Millsaps College, Millsap University now. And they were hosting uh, some apologetics debate with a well-known scholar, with a well-known apologetic scholar named William Lane Craig, Bill Craig. Uh, he's, he's, if you're following in apologetic circles, he was debating there. Some others were debating there, some other students. And and Bill Craig begins to sort of ask some of the students, a student had a question for him about the resurrection of Jesus, and Bill Craig said this, well, let me, let me ask you, sir, let me ask you, young man, do you believe in the historical record of the resurrection of Jesus? And the student kind of began to hem and haw and say something, you know, about the, uh, you know, about how the faith was being, no, 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 and Bill said, Bill Craig, no, let me ask you again, do you believe that it really actually happened? And the student stopped for a minute and said, you know, I guess I've never thought about it. I've never thought, did it really actually happen? But whether it happened makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus did not really, literally die and come back to life... That makes all the difference in the world. If he did, then everything that he said about himself is true. Because he predicted his own death. He predicted his own resurrection. He predicted many, many things. If, he, if this was true, then everything else that he said is going to be true as well. So let me jump. I told you 1 Corinthians. Go there to 1 Corinthians 15. No, I didn't tell you that. I'm just kidding. I'm adding to it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. says this, For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. Paul is writing to a church who's, who's debating whether or not there's actually a resurrection of all of the dead. And Paul says, listen, if you don't believe that, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then all of our preaching is useless. All of our faith is in vain. We have no faith. We have no Christian church. Why are we here? Says Paul. If Christ was not raised up from the dead, then you and I have no hope of being raised up from the dead. But if he has, then that changes everything. And I want to believe that the historical record suggests that very thing happened. And Jesus, I'm, I'm leaving behind something to show. This is not a mistake. This is proof that I am walking around again and I have left dead things behind. So that's the first thing I think, is it means that Christ is physically returned from the dead. I think second thing, practically, it means this, that Christ has reversed the downward spiral of death and destruction in the world. So that happened historically. What, does, what difference does that make? Well, it means that Jesus set in motion something different. 
guys ever seen a, a, a solar eclipse? You know what that is? A solar eclipse is like when the something comes before the something, sun, moon, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> lunar eclipse, that it. So in a lunar eclipse, you kind of see, you know, like the, 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 um, the, the, the shadows kind of begin to cross over the moon. You can see that, hey, this is getting really, 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 really dark. And soon the whole thing is like covered over in its total darkness. Solar eclipse, lunar eclipse, one of them. But what happens? At some point, it begins to open up again, and light begins to break through from behind. And the edges of the shadow begin to diminish. Something changes in this moment in John 20 that changes the direction of human history. It's like in the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, you know, whenever Aslan dies and the stone table is broken. You guys seen that movie? You know, and what happens? Of course, before, it's always what in Narnia? It's always winter, but never Christmas, so there's snow everywhere. Something happens when Aslan dies on the stone table. The stone table is cracked, meaning what? Meaning there'll never be a sacrifice again on that table. And what begins to happen? Spring begins to come back to Narnia. Why? Because the death of Aslan has changed the course of reality in Narnia. And I want to suggest that the death and resurrection of Jesus has changed the course of human history. He has reversed something that was going in a spiral downward. He has reversed that, and now he's beginning to undo all the damage that was done. Revelation 1 says this here. I love Revelation because we get to see these beautiful pictures of of the ascended and reigning Jesus. We get a, a picture of Jesus that we don't see in the Gospels. Listen to the description of Jesus in Revelation. This is what he looks like, the man Jesus, the resurrected one. Revelation 1.12 says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. This is the resurrected and returning king right here. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing water. His voice sounds like Niagara Falls. He opened opens his mouth, and it's just this polyphonous sound of just waters pouring out of his mouth. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. We don't look at the sun in all of its brilliance. Why? Because it burns our corneas. Every eight-year-old knows that. Don't look at the sun. It's going to burn your eyes. But Jesus is glowing like the sun in all of its fury. And I saw him. I fell down at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Look at what he says now. He says, I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. So even in heaven, Jesus is defining himself by this reality of being dead and resurrected again. The first and the last is I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. He pulls him out of his pocket in his robe, and he holds him out. He says, guys, guess what I got right here? See what this key is right here? (laughs) This is the key to death. Guess how I got this, guys? 
And this other one, this is the key to hell. Guess how I got this one, guys? I have sovereignty now over death and hell. And so he... And so Christ in his, in his resurrection is reversing this downward spiral where death claims all men. I, I, I finally think this. I mean, I think the last thing it means is personally it means a new life here and now is made possible for me. If we go to the, if we go to the tomb, if we go to the grave, we look inside, we have to say that is possible for me. Romans 6, let me take you there. I could tell you, in, in, in the early days of my Christian journey, my faith journey, it was really one of, of constant struggle. Maybe you know what that's like. I was in a cycle of failure and forgiveness. Do you know what I mean by that? My life was really just one cycle of failure and forgiveness. I would try, I would mess up, I would sin, the Lord would forgive me, I'd get up, I'd do it all over again. But I've, I think I've discovered that the secret to the life of discipleship is found in this empty tomb. When we look inside and what we see what's in there, I think it's a key that can help us move past that cycle of being constantly failing and failing and failing. Romans 6, 4 says this. Um, let me find it. 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Paul is, Paul is now making some comparisons. Paul is saying, Christ died. You, church, when you align yourself in faith with Christ, you also can die. Not physically up on a cross, we're not talking about that, but in terms of the old you that is bent and broken and full of spiritual cancer, that can die as well, says Paul. When you align yourself in faith, the old you that's broken and dead and full of spiritual cancer, all of that can die as well, says Paul. You with me on that? Amen. Hey, come on, Joe. Come on, man. Here we go. Okay. So, for if we have been united with him in death, wait, I want to get, I'm, da, 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 let me go back. Okay. Okay. What did I just read? Y'all remind me. What verse did I just read? 6-4. Okay, verse 5. So if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. I use the cancer analogy. I'm just discovering that, that very few things are, are, are as good of an analogy for sin like cancer. My dad died of cancer last, actually technically died of stroke, but he had brain cancer. And if you know anything about anybody that's gone through cancer, you know how pervasive it is 
you know, it just begins to spread through every part of your body and they'll come and they'll try to remove this organ or this tissue to, 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 to isolate it. But eventually, unchecked cancer just runs rampant through your body. And it's almost like that's how sin is. Sin is so pervasive that every part of us is infected by it. And the only way to truly be free of cancer, at least in my analogy, is for the body to die and a new one to come up again that is free of this. And Paul says this. Uh, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anybody who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. He's, that's it. And death no longer has a mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God in the same way. Verse 11 says, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. That's my point. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. I want to think about the linen shroud for a minute. What, what purpose did that serve for the people of Jesus' time? Possibly it provided a degree of dignity to the deceased and to the family members who were there, shielding them from the horror of death, covering over, masking over the death that was there. Ultimately, it's seeking to preserve that which has died, though. It's interesting in our, in our, in our funeral culture, in our culture, how much money and expense we go to to preserve life in the face of death. We'll spend money, we'll go to funeral homes, we'll pay big bucks for the best and, and you know, and, and a loved one has died. I don't, I don't want to be insensitive, I don't, you know, but often we'll walk in and we'll, we'll comment to one another about how natural they look laying there. I just want to say no. There's nothing natural about this. You know, and we do our best to put on the nicest clothes and, 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 and all, I understand all of that. You know, I face loss too, you know. But it doesn't work. And so many believers, I think we live this way instead of recognizing that we have died to our old way. We're trying to patch ourselves up and make ourselves as presentable as we can. You hear me on this? Yeah. It's like death shroud Christianity. You know, we, we, we kind of walk around with this attitude like, you know what, I'm always going to be a sinner. Man, I'm saved, but barely. Ha, ha, ha. One day I'll live the life God has for me. Until then, I'm, we, just, we do our best to look presentable to God, and we, we wrap ourselves up with these pitiful rags of self-righteousness as if they make a difference to God. We really desire to be gods, and we know that all we know is the old life. All we know is the old way. And the Christian experience for that kind of believer becomes one of constant struggle, constant effort, constant failure. Sound familiar to anybody? Constant effort, constant struggle, constant failure. And we hope against hope that one day things can be different. You know, one day I'm going to find the life I've always wanted. One day I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to get serious with God. One day I'm going to be free of this addiction. 
One day I'm going to quit doubting and worrying and I'm going to live in total freedom. One day, one day, one day. One day I'll be the kind of Christian that I really want to be. One day, one day, one day. And I think Jesus is leaving us something there to say, listen, friends, grave clothes belong in the grave. Don't bring them with you. You're meant to come out of that grave. Jesus got out of the grave and he walked out so that you could get up out of the grave and walk out too. Don't bring the rags with you. Don't bring the trappings of death with you. You're called to be new. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Musicians, come on up if you would. Praise team, come on up if you would. Here's what I think Paul is saying in, in, in Romans 6. In fact, the whole, whole Bible is saying this. The whole Bible is saying this. Jesus said this. So that's what the gospel is about. Something happened in the empty tomb that has an immediate impact with where you are right now. It's not simply an historical fact. It's not simply God changing something in the cosmos that's going to make the world a better place and we can all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and global warming will stop and the climate change will all come together. Something happened in the tomb that has an immediate bearing on your life. And we can do probably one of two things. We can say, you know what, Jesus? Thanks, but no thanks. I like my grave just fine. I like my grave clothes just fine. I'll sort things out on my own. Or you can hear his voice like Lazarus heard his voice. Get up, come out. Get up, come out. Get up, come out. And the Spirit is the one who comes and enables the grave clothes to fall off. And the Spirit is the one who enables you to walk out of the grave. Jesus said, I didn't just die on the cross so that you could get a ticket to heaven. I died and was raised up so that you could die and be raised up too and you could have life right now. Real life right now. Real power right now. Real victory right now. Real hope right now. Real deliverance right now. Hey, stand with me. empty. Come and see. Go inside. 
see what remains there, see what stays there. Did you know that the gift of life can be yours right now? That you too can be alive right now if you've never, never made that choice to receive life. This could be your day to do that. It's just done in faith. It's receiving in faith the death and the resurrection of Jesus and making it your own. You can do that today. We'll talk to you. We'll pray with you up here. You can say, Lord Jesus, that, deserve, that, 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 that should be me on the cross. On my best day, I'm a criminal. I'm a scoffer. I'm a rebel. I'm a thief and a liar. On my best day, it should be me on the cross. It should be me there in the grave for eternity. But you came and you robbed the grave. You grabbed the keys of, of death and hell. And you opened up a locked grave. And you're calling me to come out. Why? Because only one body needs to be in that new tomb. And you've already done it. And so we come out. We walk towards life. Father, give us, give us a glimpse of Jesus, the man Jesus. Like Mary, Lord, like Mary, Lord, would you speak our name, Lord? We have, sometimes our eyes get blinded as to where you are. God, would you speak our name? We want to do so many things for you, like Mary, God, but would you just speak our name? You, the gardener. What Adam lost in the garden, God, you bought back in the garden. The first Adam, the first gardener, was in charge of stewarding this place of pleasure and joy, Lord. And he chose to, to eat of the, of the fruit and brought, brought just rebellion and suffering and death. But you, Jesus, the second Adam, the second gardener, you didn't eat of the fruit of rebellion. You drank of the fruit of the vine of obedience. And through your obedience, God, you've created a new garden, a new place, a new place of pleasure, a new place of intimacy. And you're tilling the hearts of men and women today. You're walking in the cool of the garden today, drawing men and women to yourself, boys and girls to yourself. Lord, you're saying it even now. You're speaking our name even right now. You're saying to me, Brad, my son, I love you. Megan, my daughter, I love you. Speaking to each one of us our names. He's saying, come out and come alive. Come out and come alive. 